<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our weekend edition and this weekend is the last episode in 2023. So we are going to have a look at the worst news stories and the worst um, people of the year and the best people of the year. So stay in it for that. But before that, we're going to look at a few news stories to finish off our news agenda this week and then talk about Hesiod's works and days. So we'll get right to the news stories after these messages. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Uh, you can find Victor at his website, victorhansen.com, or find him on social media at um, on X at VD Hansen and on Facebook, Hansen's Morning Cup. So please come tap into Victor's wisdom in either all of those places. So Victor, we just had a few more things that um, we wanted to cover after um, our Friday news roundup that we didn't have time for. So there would be maybe a quick back and forth, just some small stories. Um, the first one, though, is just really recent that Victor, uh, Victor, sorry, Victor, not you, but Trump was banned from the main ballot. Once again, a administrator making a decision. And you mean Maine, not the main ballot, but the state of Maine. Ballot. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Yes. Yes. And that's going to be an effort in about 25 states. And the idea is to create momentum. They know that most of those states are blue states, but again, the theory or the agenda or the or the, the desire is to destroy the, because in one third of the Senate's up for re-election. So the idea is if you get Trump off the ballot, a lot of supporters 
doesn't take much in these tight races for House and Senate or governor are not going to show up and then the Democrats will win. Because I don't think it'll affect the Electoral College to that degree. I think it's going to be overturned. But I, when I say I think, that doesn't mean anything, Victor. It just means that everybody's saying that. Yeah. Because there's no alternative. Mm. The only alternative. I think Jonathan Turley, I was listening to him on the radio, and his point was if the Republicans start doing this, and he prayed they would not, then that might deter them, but it would just go tit for tat. And we, I had said that earlier, it descend into what it is. I mean, the center is not holding, is what I'm trying to say. The center of the Democratic Party? No, the center of the country is not holding, because there's not, there's not enough. It used to be when there were craziness in the 60s, you could always, the silent majority, there was the majority of students, majority of faculty, majority of the public, majority of everybody who didn't go crazy. Yeah. People are going to say, well, you went to UC Santa Cruz. Yes, I had liberal professors. They were all liberal, but they were not nuts. And I got a wonderful education. They didn't go tell you to go out and protest and break stuff. They told you the opposite. So when I can remember going to a lecture with the, the famous art historian Mary Holmes and Jasper uh, Rose were swarmed by people who said, who are you to say this is art? kind of like a nihilist, anarchist student, and everybody got angry. The students said, shut up, get out of here. And they were disciplined. So the center is not holding, and that's the problem. There's not enough. I mean, there's people should say this is absolutely absurd. You don't take the leading candidate in the Republican Party and the leading candidate in the general election and say that you're going to take him off the ballot for saying that a piece of property that's worth a billion dollars, he said it was worth $17 million 10 years ago? That's absurd. Or that he can't call and say there's something wrong. He has a right to call, just as Hollywood celebrities have a right to tell the electors to renounce their constitutional duties and become false electors, which they did in 2016. Just like Hillary Clinton has a constitutional right that says Donald Trump is not an illiterate is not a legitimate president. Just like Jimmy Carter said, he is an illegitimate president. They said that. Yeah, I know that. And Justice Stacey Abrams said, I'm the real governor of uh, Georgia. (laughs) Well, did somebody want to prosecute her for an insurrection or election interference? Just as I hate to say, Mark Zuckerberg has the legal right, apparently, to put $419 million to absorb the work of the registrars. So these are all bogus. Yeah. They're all bogus. But there's not enough people that speak out. There's not enough normal people anymore. Partly it's because we're polarized. Partly they took over the education system, they being the left, turned it into indoctrination, and that was a zero-sum game. So you lost out on critical investment in time and real, you know, STEM courses, histories. They don't teach it anymore. Yeah. That's grim. Well, another story that didn't make our news roundup or we didn't have time for was um, Japan apparently is providing the U.S. with some Patriot missiles, which strikes me as interesting that we need to be supplied by Japan. But what are, are you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting for two reasons. What happened to the United States that used to supply Japan and supply the world? We can't make them anymore. We don't make them anymore. We have too many people on TikTok. 
We have too many people in the basement playing video games. We have too many people taking their clothes off on Instagram to get paid. We don't have a, a productive, intelligent workforce anymore. So we're not making things. We have supply chain problems on everything, from chemotherapy to you know, radiation dye for MRI scans. And so that's the problem. We, sh we shouldn't have to ask Japan. We should just say, you want patriots? We got scores of them. That's what we do. We make patriots. We make them like P-51 Mustangs in World War II. But we don't. And Japan is trying to be a good ally because, you know what? 130, 140 people, and they're sitting right next to this monstrous state, this communist, Stalinist, aggressive, amoral, evil government under the communist and, and they want to destroy Japan. Well, yes, they yes. have a lot of reason to hate Japan, and given Japan World is, War II. Yes, well, they do. They do. Yes. But this government that is running Japan is not the militarist government. That was destroyed. And by the way, anybody, when you talk about, oh, Hamas, poor little Hamas, that is how Japan became a liberal society. We did not screw around with the Japanese militarist. We hung Tojo and blew, blew up the militarist and defeated and humiliated that government and anybody who was near it. And that's what you have to do with, with Gaza as well. Then maybe the Gazans will come to their senses, as the Japanese did. Mm -hmm. But the point I'm making is that they want, they want us to help. They don't have any nuclear weapons. Of course, they could make nuclear weapons. I think they have enough fissionable material to make about 1,500 of them in about six months. They would work like Tundras and Hondas and Lexuses not like North Koreans. But <laughs> my point is that if we don't protect them, then they'll go nuclear because they have to. Look at what's right next to them. And so Mr. Chi said at a recent uh, meeting with Joe Biden that it's just a matter of time he's gonna, they're going to take Taiwan. Wow. And Joe Biden didn't say a word, apparently. Wow, that's so sad. Well, uh, speaking of our enemies, um, Russia also has a story where a political opponent of Putin apparently fell out of a window, according to the Russian presses, from a heart attack. <laughs> you know, that's very funny because everybody knows in the last five years, 10, 12, 15 notable uh, Russians who were uh, opposed to Putin or whom he didn't like fell out of windows, right? Yes. And then they always say they had a heart attack or they had a stroke. So why do they keep doing it? Why, do they, why don't they run them over with a car or shoot them or inject them with plutonium or something like they used to? Because they want everybody to play this sick game. Oh, he just happened to fall out of a window. Hmm. I wonder why that happened. So they're doing it intentionally. When, when I say that, the same modus operandi, right? The same way of killing people so that everybody knows that every time you hear a guy fall out of the window, A, Putin did it. B, he did it for a reason to create deterrence. And C, we say it is a heart attack. Yes, or some other. And it's kind of a cruel game we play. Yeah, it's and terrible. That's what, that's what it is. Yeah. Another cruelty is that there's a lot of different places um, investigating all of the different diseases that are coming across the border. And I came across an interesting quote from your colleague, Jay Bhattacharya, and he said that 
polio and leprosy are almost certainly imports to the United States. And of course, he didn't want to say directly the illegal immigration, but that's um, they are not being checked for diseases. And we do have cases why, why of polio and leprosy. Yeah, go ahead. Leprosy, or as it's known, Hansen's disease. Yes. Uh, it, it comes from where? Rural Mexico. It doesn't come from the United States. There's only a few places in the Western Hemisphere where it's found. And they're in Latin America. I remember my children went to a very impoverished rural, rural grammar school, and they had a person with Hansen's disease. It's really? Tre- yes, they did. And it's treatable. Wow. And okay. Among other things, like whooping cough, that was common. A lot of people brought all sorts of things up from the border. Of course, when you say that you're racist, you're just saying they're bringing in. No, I'm not. I'm just saying when you bring 8 million people from the poorest regions in the world, and they're going to come up here, and one of, I won't mention physicians, I won't make the city, but one of the physicians I knew very well got tired of treating them because of the diseases that came up. And he was in, you know, a rural office, and people came up with all sorts of things that he had not seen, from malaria to Shigala, to Shigala, and all of these weird things. Mm, yeah. And he was on the front line treating them. Yeah. And no one ever said to them, hey, no one ever says, we just uh, kicked out 8,500 armed members of the armed forces. Uh, many of them, almost all, had had COVID and natural immunity, but we kicked them out because they did not get a vaccination. But we're going to let 8 million people in without any worry about vaccinations, health care. Do they have tetanus violation? vaccinations? I don't know. Do they have whooping cough? I don't know. Do they have polio? I don't know. Do they have small? I don't know. Measles? No one knows. Typhus, typhoid, yellow fever? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Because that's what DEI does. DEI warps every single issue. Every single issue ultimately comes down to, well, what are you saying about that? That is racist. No, it's not. It's racist to bring people in based on their race. Because believe me, if they were a bunch of Victor Orban um, Hungarians or Poles, we would not let them in. Nor should we. No. If they were coming across an 8 million, right? Yeah. But this is what's going on. And no one wants to tell the truth about it. Why, When Mallorcas or Biden just lie and say the border is secure... What they're basically saying is we were importing people to change the demography of the United States and to some degree to give cheap labor for our corporate friends, but mostly to change the demography and to bring in voters to support issues that otherwise we do not have 51%. That's what it is. Yeah. Nothing different. And I don't know why the blue states are angry. Um, I guess it's because... Eric Adams used to, remember, he used to offer water. He would go meet them at the bus and say, oh, this is, we're a sanctuary city. So I thought they were happy, and now they're angry. I suppose they feel, well, we don't need them here because all the conservatives have fled to Florida and Tennessee and Idaho and from Illinois and from New York. So we're all blue now. So why do we want more blue dependents? But when you see 8 million people, that's not the end of it crossing the border or they don't reach heaven that's the beginning because they need health care and our system if you go to a doctor i had an appointment it's one year i had to wait for a cardiologist 
I used to go to a urologist. I won't mention any names or the city where I go, but it was every three to six months for kidney stones. Now it's check your prostate, all that stuff. It's about three minutes you see him, and it's packed. And the most many of the people cannot speak English. When I go to the emergency room during my bee sting, I got pretty good care, but I was the only person that spoke English, I think, other than the staff and the doctor. None of the patients did. And it was just jam-packed. Yeah. And so when you let all those people in, the schools are going to be impacted. The health care, everything. It's going to cost a lot of money, hundreds of billions of dollars. And we're already printing $1.7 this year. Yeah. So is the, the center's not holding. There's going to be a hard rain that's going to fall next year. It really is. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and um, take a break, and then we'll come back for a talk about Hesiod's works and days. Um, we have, well, this is a little bit short on our first segment, but Hesiod's works and days, I have a feeling, might take a little bit longer. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. Um, so, Victor, I know that Hesiod's works and days are a... Um, as seventh century, early seventh century, is that right? Yes, um, it is. Poem, and it's a poem, and and I read through it, and I was um, interested in some of the topics. And so, I think what I would ask, ask you broadly is just how are we supposed to think about this? Because it is a lot of practical advice, although it's not exclusively that. Um, and you know, for us in the modern day, how does it apply? Well. I wrote about, I have a chapter in the other Greeks that I was, that was published 30 years ago. I wrote a big book, Other Greeks, and I have a chapter called Hesiod's World. So he was writing as a contemporary of Homer, but Homer wrote about, as we talked about, the Odyssey and the Iliad were about epics, epic adventures, epic fighting. 
Hesiod lives in central Greece in a place called Boeotia, but up on Mount Helicon. I've been there at Ascra. It's not too far from the ancient site of Thespia. And it's not wretched, as he says, you know, terrible in winter, terrible in summer. It's not. It's, it's a very beautiful place. And when you go up on the mountains, you can see Delphi and Thebes, etc. It's one of the highest mountains in central Greece. And he lives about a quarter of the way up. Okay. And whoever he was, he wrote a didactic. A didactic is a fancy word for a, a poem about instruction. And because 90% of the people in the pre-industrial world were agricultural, he wrote a poem about farming. And he wrote it right at the beginning of the city-state, after the end of the Dark Ages in Greek, 400 years following the destruction of the Mycenaean palaces. There was an uptick in population around 750 to 800. That's when he may have been uh, composing, probably composed this orally like Homer did. That is, he didn't write it down, but memorized it, although he was the last generation probably so of the oral bard, so it probably was written down. I think the name Hesiod means somebody who, he a me, odos, he throws out songs. And ostensibly, it's, a, it's anger at his no good, worthless brother. Yeah. And uh, he's saying that the cure to all problems is erga upon erga, epi erga, epi erga. Work upon work upon work. You work, 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 work. And here's how you do it. So he tells you there's a season and a time and a month to fix this, plant that, harvest that. He actually gives you a paradigm of what the economic life was like that caused the city-state revolution, if you think about it. Triad, olives, grain, grapes. Grapes give you raisins, they give you wine, they give you fresh fruit. The wheat and barley give you bread, they give you porridge, staple. Olives give you soap, lubricants for your axles. Uh, olive oil, pro good sense of protein, and you can consume olives all year long. So it's a triad. They all harvest at different times, so they don't overlap. They, you can have an economic... So there's a whole paradigm that created this agricultural bounty. And I mapped it out. And a lot of the evidence for that is in not only the Odyssey and Laertes' farm, but Hesiod's farm. So it's a, it's a poem about 800 words, 800 lines, excuse me. And it's in dactylic hexameter. Most of it, if not the vast majority, is written in Ionian dialect of Greece. Like, it's pretty... If you know Homeric Greek, then you can read Hesiod very easily. There's a little bit, I don't remember any Boeotian, but there's a little bit of Aeolic, that's a dialect of Greece that's in it. And it's basically about Perseus, his brother, and he fighting over the land and how crooked the people down in the, in the valley are at Thespiae, not the valley, but around the corner. And they're bribe-swallowing people. But if a person works in a world onto his own and he has a plan, he can become prosperous. If he's lazy, if he goes in as an agora lounger, so to speak, if he just worries about the city or he worries about being envious, then he's going to fail. And in this short poem, he brings in some very famous myths. 
that we have nowhere else at that time. So he, he gives us the myth of Pandora, all, all gifts. That's what the word Pandora means. And he basically said that we had five ages of man. We had a golden age when everything, it was kind of like the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Then when there was still a good age of silver, we had to work. And then things got a little worse, the bronze. But then we had the heroic age where people fought, but they had substance to them. And now we're, unfortunately, in his time in the Iron Age. And there's disease and strife and war. And when we opened Pandora's box, all of these came out as we warned, were warned they would. We weren't supposed to open it, according to the various myths. But there was help, peace at the bottom. Help. Hope. Excuse me. Cut that, Robert. So there was El Peace, hope at the bottom of the chest. And that's what we keeps us going. We can always hope that next day will be better. And that myth, and the age, five ages of men is in it. There's a really good one about strife where the falcon or the hawk grabs the game bird and says, I'm the stronger. And the game bird said, will you let me go? Whatever I do, I can do whatever I want to you. And it's sort of a parable of the Melian dialogue, a precursor. It's about realism. You've got to accept there's certain unfairness in the world rather than whining about it. He also introduces a very important idea that there are two types of jealousy. The good jealousy, Ares, and the bad one, Thonos. So, if you want to get an example of the bad jealousy, go to Britain. Socialist Britain, you walk by, you see a Bentley, you say, how did he get that Bentley? Is anybody looking? I'm going to kick in the fenders. Bad jealousy. Good jealousy, you're in the United States, you walk by, you see a guy in a Mercedes, and you think, wow, that's a nice car. You see the driver, you don't want to kick it in, you want to go talk to him. You say, how did you get that? Well, Mr. Anson, it was 120000 I said, well, how do you finance it? I'd like to get one. How much do you make? I don't make that. How much do you make to buy it? Well, I make $300,000 a year. Well, how would I do that? Give me some advice. That's the good envy. The suburban rat race, what socialists said the suburban rat race was, we're all going to be in little paper boxes, so to speak. Remember that song from the 60s and Daily City? And then we're going to see our neighbor and we're going to say, look, he doesn't have any oil on his driveway. We're going to clean our driveway uh, to make sure that it's as clean as his. Oh, look, they just got a new Vista Cruiser Buick station wagon. We're going to get a better one. That was the good envy. Yeah. And he talks about that. So it's a snapshot of a revolutionary time in Greece where they're coming out of a pastoral, underpopulated, depressed condition where writing has been lost, civilization for a lot of it has been lost, and now the city-states emerging with a very vibrant agriculture based on private property, wide-scale land-owning, equal distribution, and very productive graft, new graft, new, new types of... Uh, crops, new types of agricultural strategy that are creating surpluses and wealth. And he's trying to give us advice about that. But in the process, he's kind of like Wendell Berry, you know, if you ever read Wendell Berry's novels? He's kind of a leftist. I, I used to get nice letters from him, but he's a very smart guy, and I always admired him. And he, he tried to create a corpus of work about morality based on farming. I tried to do a little bit in two books. Um, Almost, I guess, 
getting close to 30 years ago, Fields Without Dreams and Letters from American Farmer about what you can learn from farming as far as values, morality, the country. And so that's what he's it's trying to do. He's, saying, he's trying to say, if you work on the land, you will develop an ethos, and that ethos is conducive for civilization. Yeah. He has a long, in the beginning, he talks often about dike. I hope I said <laughs> that right. DK. Justice. Yeah. What is it? Can you give us a little discussion, or what is he trying to convey about? Well, he's trying to go beyond the Olympian gods. Remember, there's 12 gods, and DK is the purview of Zeus. So Deuce, dis, Zeus dispenses justice. By the 750s, remember, these mythologies go back to Mycenaean period. These mythologies do. And they are elaborated on, adapted, rejected, enhanced during the Dark Ages. But during civilization in the West that begins around 750, Western civilization, there's already skepticism. What he's trying to do is translate an old Olympian idea of an anthropomorphic god, Zeus, who gives you justice. And justice is not really justice. It's, uh, did you insult somebody? Did you help your friends? Did you punish your enemies? Were you um, moderate in your behaviors? Don't insult somebody. Treat, speak softly. But he's this new justice is inanimate. He's saying that Zeus has allowed, uses the vehicle of Zeus, to create an all-encompassing justice that's absolutely necessary for the city-state. And that has things like don't lie, don't cheat, don't break the law, uh, show reverence to the gods, be pious, treat people the way you would like to be treated. It's pre-Christian. It's not completely Christianity, but it's, it's a new idea that there are in, innate laws of nature that we can detect that are central to getting along as humans. And he calls that DK, and he, he uses the vehicle of Zeus, but it's more than just the god Zeus. Yeah. He seemed to say that if you live on the straight path, that your society will be governed by DK. And so I thought that was kind of I think of everybody understands what he's talking he about. He talks about hubris causing hubris is arrogance, innate, overweening arrogance. And if you're arrogant then you are going to create a nemesis, that is a divine retribution, and then Ate, there will be complete destruction. Yeah. Oedipus called on the gods by his arrogance, but he called the god Nemesis. Yeah. And so he's trying to say be moderate. I think all of us understand that whether you believe in the Greek idea of nemesis or the Eastern idea of karma or the American idea of payback's a bitch, or the colloquial Western term, what comes around goes around, that there is some inanimate force in the universe. We don't know. Maybe it's divine. I think it is. That watches everything. And there's something in Hesiod called the uh, Optimalos to Zenus. The eye of Zeus sees everything. Yeah. Sees everything sees everything. Once when my mother was up for a judicial appointment in the 70s, uh, Jerry Brown was governor, and he was a Jesuit, and people were leaking that he knew Greek very well. 
So just as a lark, my dad, because it was a very contested appointment, they never had a woman as appellate court judge in this area. I think there was only three in the state. So my dad, who was a practical old guy, I mean, he's really great. I worshipped him, and he said, well, you know, you spent all that time reading Greek. Can you write it? And I said, yes, I can. Actually, I was pretty good in Greek. He said, I want you to write a letter to the governor in Greek and say, I want my mom to be an appellate court judge, and here's why she was qualified as a superior court. And I said, well, Dad, superior, appellate, these are modern concepts, but a good... He said, well, don't you know how to translate them into ancient ideas? I said, yes, I do. I had Lionel Pearson teach me Greek composition. I had Anthony Robichek. I had Mark Edwards. So these were just names of classicists. And I had been kind of ridiculed, so I sat down one day and I wrote out the entire letter to Jerry Brown. And I <laughs> mailed it to him, and guess what? Jerry Brown wrote me back in Greek. Wow. And you know what he wrote? What? Uh, two lines from Hesiod. Oh. The eye of Zeus sees everything, great and small. <laughs> <laughs> and two months later, he appointed my mother one of the first female appellate court judges. Yeah. Did it have anything to my letter? Probably not. He was probably going to do it anyway. She was yeah. a conservative Democrat. It was a good time to do that. She had three kids. She came from a farm. Yeah. She had two Stanford degrees. It, it didn't reflect badly on him. No, not at and all. So, uh, but he did do that. In later years, he would call up and he would mention that to me. <laughs> Usually when I wrote a very negative column about California, yeah. he would call out of the blue and rail, you're wrong about that. You said that... We inherited paradise, and we made it into purgatory, and Texas had purgatory, and they made it into paradise. That's crazy. <laughs> Why don't you go into Texas if it's so great? He was kind of yeah. kidding. Yeah. I must say that I, although I disagree with him politically, I liked him. Yeah. I still do like him. He called me up not too long ago, last summer. <laughs> well, you also mentioned um, Pandora, and yes. I was kind of interesting, interested in that because it, it Hesiod describes it as a box that the gods gave all jar. gave. I think it's a, a jar. jar that yes. the um, gods all gave gifts to, and he said, "Be careful of those gifts; they're not good for you." And I was what I was um, interested in is that he sounds like the gods are out to get humans; like they're out to cause all sorts of harm to humans. The gods, and the it, Greek gods, are not moral gods. Yeah, I know that they're enforcers. Yeah of certain roles. So they're promiscuous. But cheating on, if you're Zeus, you cheat on Hera all the time and try to get away with it. If you're Aphrodite, you're slutty. Yeah. You're beautiful and slutty. If you're uh, Hephaestus, you, you're a smithy and you've got a crooked leg and people make fun of you. So they're cruel. But, but they're, they're just men that don't die. They're athanatoi. They're deathless. And they're stronger than we are. They're immortal and they're strong. And they enforce a particular code. They reflect the code of Greece. And what is that code? It's pre-Christian. It's not Sermon on the Mount. It's not mm -hmm. Turn the Other Cheek. Yeah. It's sort of what Gibbon was calling classic. Gibbon thought that the advent of Christianity, of course, was in part responsible for the lack of martial readiness on the part because they were too pacifistic. I don't think if he's right. But the point is, if you're a Greek and you make these gods, whether you made the gods reflect, you just had this code and you created gods, or whether you really believe that they created you, 
if you did believe that, you were pious. If you didn't, you were a sophist or a rationalist. But anyway, what was they were to enforce an order as they saw it. If people get away with bad things, it's bad. So you punish your enemies. You don't let them get away. You don't give them parole. And if you don't help your friends, who will? So that's what the chief moral barometer was. Help your friends, punish your enemies. Work very, very, very hard. Do not be arrogant. That's one of the worst things you can do in classical morality. But be boastful, loud, arrogant. The world will not work if everybody's that way. You cannot be a slave to your appetites. Socrates, maiden, agon. But why would the gods be slaves to their appetites? That's a good question. A lot of people said that, well, the Greeks were so confident, they were so capable, they were so accomplished, they made gods that were less than they were. They had that confidence. They didn't need a Jesus, so, so, so to speak. I don't subscribe to that, but again, that great line in Euripides' Bacchae where Cadmus and Teresius tell the god Dionysus after he's destroyed basically the whole house of Cadmus and Pentheus has been decapitated by his own mother when she's crazed with Dionysic fury, they say, the God should be better than we are. God should be better than men, not worse. Basically, you're worse, Dionysus, than we are. Yeah. And so we don't need you. But So I want, if people go to read this, they're probably going to note a, a remark that Hesiod seems to say that the, you know, overwhelmingly that the gods are going to put things in your way that are going to trip you up. And it you don't get the same senses, for example, in the Homeric epics where Athena is on Odysseus's side. If Poseidon's not, at least she's good to him, See, right? There's not, so this Hesiod doesn't have that. And this is the collective. There's no individual heroes in this. This is everybody. That's what makes it so different. This is every man. The Iliad and the Odyssey are about great people that do things that most people cannot do, and they get certain exemptions. And that one of the greatest exemptions is the gods help them, right? They have patron gods. Athena, Odysseus, right? Yeah. Thetis, Achilles, etc. Okay. Hera likes Paris. Paris likes Hector. Poseidon likes the Trojans, etc., etc., etc. But this is more about the way the world is in Hesiod's time. It's not a, I'm going to be the final generation of a long um, father to son, grandfather to grandson, or blind bard to blind bard tradition of oral poetry, capturing the exaggerated accomplishments of Mycenaean lords before the fall. This is, we're in, the, we're in 750 BC, and this is a whole new world, and we're being very successful, and we've got a transition from an aristocratic order of the dark ages of ponies and herding and, you know, gift-giving to a more sophisticated, high, much more highly populated Greece, one that would be recognizable for the next 2,500 years. So it's a pragmatic handbook about how everybody should behave. So he wants to just tell people to just expect that the gods are going to cause problems for you in this He's world. And so say, as you're yes. living, you want to be very weird. So He's saying, when you get up in the morning and ask on the Mount Helicon, 
and you go to bed that night, you're going to have a hell of a day. You're going to get, it's going to be cold. It's going to be hot. You're going to get bit by an insect or a snake. You're going to have somebody quit. You're going to have somebody try to steal. Maybe it'll be your, even be your own brother. You may be sick. And these are all the ills that gods gave us. This race of iron. We're in yeah. the iron age. We're not the golden age. But, but, if you keep your nose to the grindstone, and you keep out of the affairs of busybodies and agora loungers, and you just work, 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 and you don't cheat people, and you don't let people cheat you, you, will, you can obtain prosperity and success yeah. for all of that. It's kind of like, you know what, I, when I read that the first time at 18, I read it, I think, at 20 in Greek, it was just almost like word for word from my, my maternal grandfather, who was the one, two, he was the third generation here. He was born in the house I'm living in 1890, and his father uh, had come here with his grandmother in 1870. And they had been generation that was, he died in his bed in 1976, at 86. But that's all he told me, if you work very hard. Or I would, he would, I would come home from school at 10, and I'd say, hey, Grant, my parents were at work. And I would take what my aunt called the wheel, my little bicycle. Hey, Victor, you got the wheel today? <laughs> and I would ride down to this house, and then my grandfather would say, how did it go today? I didn't, but he didn't just say, how did it go today? It was, I think it's time to irrigate. <laughs> I think it's time to pick up walnuts. So we were always working. And he would say, just as he said, you know, there's something innately noble about work. Work, 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 work. Yes. And I'd say, I was a smart ass at 10. I'd say, well, why don't we just, if it's so noble, why don't we just pound in vineyard steaks and then take them out and pound them again. <laughs> and he said, that's kind of silly, Victor, because we don't have time, because we can't even speculate at things like that. There's so many things that are we have to do. We have to do it the right way, the first and only time. There's no margin of error. And then he would say, now go get your gun and go lay down there in the vineyard and shoot those woodpeckers that are making holes. I thought of that today because I've been on vacation. I'm cleaning up all these eight buildings. And there's, I was trying to deal with a woodpecker, and I thought, I have been shooting you SOBs since I was 10 years old. And everybody's dead who wanted you dead, and you're still here. And I'm 70 for 60 years, <laughs> and you still come. And then that little woodpecker actually flew out of the hole. He was inside the attic of my outdoor restroom. And I thought he was saying to me, well, you've been here six generations, but so have I, because you killed my great-great-great-grandfather. And we're here to stay. So it's that kind of how to live with all these things. Yeah. Well, he does say a few things in there that I was curious about. He said that they made um, a drink with wine and water, and it was oh. one part wine and three parts water. That's I pretty sad. strong. <laughs> you remember that their, their wine was a concentrate. Yeah. It had the dregs and everything in it. Oh, wow. And it was strong. So usually that sometimes it was one to ten. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was not designed as Americans to have a couple, toss off a couple of Cabernets at 7 o'clock. It was watered down. People drank it all day, yeah. apparently. Oh, wow. Because that was kind of a preservative that made the, if, you know, it was hard to get clean water. And 
especially vinegar. We know that Romans drank vinegar and water, wine and water. It was kind of a way to clean the system clean out, clean the system, and stop bacteria in the water. Yeah. He also said, and I'm just wondering if this was true from your experience with grapes yourself, that you leave grapes in sun for ten days and ten nights. Is it that about right for raisins for, to make them into raisins? Yeah. The only thing is that they, that word, as I remember it in Greek, is stathis. And as it's used in some of the agricultural writers, they had, and we don't because we store, we had to store and ship them. So if you, it depends on the weather. So when you put grapes, say on the 1st of September, a 22 pound paper tray, it will turn into a raisin pretty much at 15 degrees moisture, 15 points of moisture. And that means it's storable. If it gets to, it has to be below 15 or won't store. And it should have about 20 brick. B-R-I-X, sugar. And then makes a raisin the kind you see in your uh, raisin bran, okay, or sun-made raisins. But that 21 days can be shortened. It can be shortened if you take the paper tray and turn it over, called flipping a tray, turning trays. Get one good tray, you you grab it on the top, and you flip it over, and then the green side is up. You got to be careful because they can burn. You don't want to, if it's 108 and you're on day 12 and you try to turn them and they'll turn into caramelized raisins in two days. They're no good. Yeah. So it's somewhere between 10 and 12 to 10 and 20 days. Depending, and of course, when the dew starts in late September, it's very hard to dry. They can rot. But what he's talking about, 10 days, I think they had in the ancient world, there's a lot of debate about it, something between a grape and a raisin that mm-hmm. might be storable for a few months or a few weeks. Yeah. You've seen those. We call them frog bellies when I was farming. I those haven't seen pr- those. <laughs> those are raisins that are purple. Grapes that have been out there in the sun for 10 days and they're purple. Yeah. But they're kind of squishy still. They're yeah. not hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you eat them, they kind of they have kind of grape juice, but they're kind of raisins yeah. in between. And I think they did that a lot. Yeah. But maybe that's why he means 10 days. I have seen, I have made raisins in 10 days but it was always I picked at the end of August and it was 108 and I got those 10 days of longer days but usually if you pick them the 5th of September or 6th or 7th then you're talking 21 days yeah if you're stupid and you go to the last possible day to get insurance on the 20th of September Mm -hmm. you will get a beautiful heavy sugar raisin they're beautiful and they will weigh 30% more and you'll make money, but you're really risking it because you're not going to be 21 days. It's going to be 28 days, and it's going to be not until mid-October, and that's when some of the rains come in. If it rains on the ground, you're all done for. Yeah. This is the the old way before they were trellised above, you know, eye level. Yeah. They dry on the vine now. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing, because we do need to get to our worst and best of 2023. Um, but I very interesting. He said the marrying time is basically 30 years old, yes. give or take a few years. We're, not, I mean, usually we think that older civilizations they got married a lot earlier. Although he did say the woman was yes, five years beyond puberty, but the yes. man was 30. Yes, well, that's that's true in Greece today. That a per, the man is usually 10 years older, but when he says five, 
five years beyond puberty, puberty or menstruation can be as young as 12 or 13. So he's talking about a woman 16, 17, 18, marrying a person that should be 30. And why 30? Because that's given him time to grow up. He's not a prolonged adolescent. And apparently by that time, he's got his farm. He's got his wagon. He's got his two donkeys. And he's got a barn full of grain, right? He's a man of substance. And he can afford to get married and the dowry then comes with it. Yeah. But uh, it's not talking about women getting married at 30. No, 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 no. no, no. no. That's Ro- that's Roman decadence right out of Petronius and <laughs> Catullus and yeah, Suetonius. He's, he's not very flattering about women. He doesn't no. say much about them, but one point he says you can't trust women. <laughs> and he, he's pretty short about the things he said. I think it was trust. Anyway. That goes back. It's not so much women in general. It's just this physical society where uh, you succeed or fail by muscular labor. You have to be smart and crafty, but you have to be strong and physical. And women can't compete physically, no matter what the trans community says. I should say they can't, so they have to use guile, and that's where Calypso, you know, Calypso, who entrances people, means what? Calypto means to cover or to make secret or make hidden. She's an art, you know, that's where they are. That's and what her art is. Yes, and that was the <laughs> that was the complaint against women through sex sex or seduction. They get their way, whereas men are just open to club you over the head with a big stick. Yeah, sure, and are ready to believe anything. Yes. So that's a good target for women. Um, so they must get along really well, even according to Hesiod. All right. Well, Victor, let's take a break, and then we'll come back for the worst and best of 2023. Stay with us, and we'll be back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. So, Victor, let's start with the big thing. Like, What are the five worst events of... 2023 because let's go over them what are your thoughts uh october 7th i mean big everybody should get this straight israel was not in gaza it was not colonializing gaza it asked egypt to take it over egypt had had take egypt did not want it the gazans had been what they would say Jew-free since 2005, they'd had an election. They voted for Hamas. They never had another election. And they got 
billions of dollars from Europe, from the United States, from the UN, and Israel subsidized their power, water, and stuff. And what did they do with it? They built a labyrinth, a multi-billion dollar tunnel city. And they start, they went in on October 7th and they butchered 1,200 people. They raped, they desecrated, they mutilated. There's a new video out from the IDF. It's horrible. You can read about it in Powerline. Even the people in the New York Times that don't like Israel were shocked. What did they do? As they were raping women, they were killing them at the same time during intercourse. They sodomized men. They cut off breasts. They tortured women as they were raping them. Who does that? Who does that? And that is really important for people to realize what they did because... They were rooted on. They were supported by people here in the United States on these campuses. They really were. And that was before the IDF ever lifted a finger. So for about 20 days, the people at Stanford and Harvard and Yale and all these universities who were saying river to the sea, smack the effing Jew, swarming, Israel hadn't responded. They were just exhilarated on news of this. And, And you know what? I'll be very brief, but these people were educated. But then is that a surprise? Castro was from upper, an upper, upper middle class. Dr. Castro, right? Che Guevara, upper, upper educated class. Mao. Mao was from a peasant family that had become affluent. Trotsky, upper, upper. He was really wealthy. He was from a very wealthy Jewish Ukrainian uh, Russian family, very Lenin, upper, upper, upper middle class, Ho Chi Minh, very prosperous and very educated. All of them have one thing in common, that revolutionary spirit of killing people to make it equal comes out of wealthy people who are educated and they feel they have the time and they have the money that they feel guilty about their inequality and they want to make it all equal, but they want to make it equal with two qualifiers. We need the power to do it, and you we're going to get it, and we're going to be exempt from what we force other people to do. Animal and that's farm. what happened. Yeah. And so people should remember that October 7th was... Uh, it was an ugly scab, and we tore it off with this horrible mutilation and killing. And underneath there was a putrid, smelly wound of anti-Semitism that had been there a long time. Yeah. And the big story was that the Gazans were not innocent. Yeah. Five or six hundred of them in this latest account were... They came with makeshift swords, knives. They raped, they killed, they looted, they spat... Spit, spat on people who were hostages. They were cheering. They voted for Hamas. I don't see that they're innocent at all. No, no. Who's number two up on your list? I think December 5th. Somebody says, well, Victor, it was just three college presidents, president of the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and Harvard. Yeah, but they were collectively illustrating what is higher education. And at all of what I just said, they could not condemn. They didn't condemn it. Even they couldn't condemn harassment of Jews. We didn't get anything at my university really condemning October 7th till the, the December 5th testimony. And then all these college presidents got paranoid. Oh, 
I don't want to end up like Liz McGill. I better have a memo, not in our name, you know, that kind of stuff. So they really revealed to us uh, what their values are. And the values were this. We have decided in our cultural Marxist binary that the non-white are victims forever, no matter how wealthy or privileged they are. And all of the white people are victimizers and oppressors, despite many of them having no privilege and no money. And that's because we're racist. And that's basically what it is. And if you get that in your mind, you can understand their testimony because they lied to us under oath. They said to us, it depends on the context, whether we publish people, punish people who are saying from the river to the sea and Jews and genocide, all this stuff. In other words, well, yes, they're calling for the destruction of Jews and they're harassing Jews on campus and they want to destroy Israel. But, you know... That's just, you know, students will be students. However, if you dare say that about a trans person or a Latino or a black, well, we will expel you by the time you blink. And they know that, but they lied about it. And they said, it depends on the context. Partly true. They should have said this if they had any soul to them or background. They would have said this. Well, it depends whether we publish, uh, punish people for calling for the genocide or the complete destruction or the murder or hate crimes. It depends on the context of whether they are a marginalized minority or not. If they are and they are the subject of that attack, then the attackers will be expelled. If they are the attackers, then we'll contextualize it as well and say they didn't really mean it. That's what it was all about. Well, you and they really did damage. I don't think Harvard, as I keep, I wrote in a couple of pieces today or this week, I should say, Harvard can either be the preeminent university in the United States, or it thinks it is, or it can have a plagiarist and somebody who doesn't tell the truth as its president. It cannot have both. Yeah. And the longer she's there, and the longer that board is there, the it's just bad news. Every student who's been expelled will say, "I didn't plagiarize as much as she did." Every professor who is denied tenure as an assistant professor with one book will say, at least I had a book. She never published one. Every person who uh, feels that they're Jewish will say she couldn't even. She, she gives us a memo every week when she was dean. She couldn't even write a memo until they kind of shamed her. And then, then only then she wrote a memo. She hates us. That's what they think. Yeah. So that was a that was a terrible day. Yeah, that was a horrible day. I it was like nine eleven all over again. I they kept playing it. I kept, yeah, and you can't believe it. And yet, what you don't you you always either overlook or you don't talk about is the one that said, "Well, I have to see actionable conduct on genocide before." That was just mind boggling. Well, they all basically said we, we have we have to see how it translates into conduct. Yeah. And that's when Miss Stefanik said, Stefanik said, do you mean you have to see somebody dead? dead? <laughs> and I guess the answer is yes, if they are Jews. God. And so, and then the other thing, of course, was Liz McGill was forced to resign at the University of Pennsylvania. She should be. But if you look at her, I looked at her uh, Vita compared to Colleen, Claudine Gray, gay. There's no comparison. Yeah. She has been dean of Sanford Law School. She was a uh, administrator at the University of Virginia. She's got a lot more publications. It's not even close. Mm. So if a white woman 
with far more substance is forced to resign for her ridiculous yeah. and embarrassing performance than why does Claudine Gay be exempt? Yeah. And they say it's racist if she was fired. No, it's racist that she's not fired. Yeah. All right. And number three, what do you uh, have? Number three, I was thinking about that. I think it's this outrage. I had a toss-up. It's outrage at either this open border where people are 8 million just walking th across every day and you look at them and we're told they're starving, they're refugees, they seem very well fed, they have nice, they have clothes, they have cell phones, and they're just breaking the law. And everybody's saying, this can't happen. What's going on? And it's the same thing abroad to, to co collapse these two events into number three. We've had 120 attacks on Americans in Syria and Iraq with nothing. And then we've, they've taken over the whole Red Sea, the Houthis have. Iran is saying that they run the Eastern Mediterranean. And what does Lloyd Austin do when he has a little tit for tat? He wants to, to reassure the world. He said, we responded in a way that was measured and proportionate. No, no, we don't want to be measured and proportionate. We want to be crazy and disproportionate. We want to let Iran know you do that again. You don't have any idea what we're capable of. You like that power plant? It's gone. You hit another person? You like that nuclear facility? It's gone. You like that harbor with those warships? They're gone. How do you like that? And we're not going to ever tell you we did it. We're not going to tell you when we came and when we leave. We're just going to tell you one time. Every time you do that, there's going to be a disproportionate. And we have a lot more reserves than you do. And if you start terrorism in the United States, then that's going to be equivalent with something we won't mention. And that's and the problem will be solved. Yeah. Up for number four. <laughs> I want to have some lightheartedness. I thought one of the worst things, because I've been to San Francisco two or three times this year, and it is a hellhole. I don't care what anybody says. Whether it's the cars with the signs that say, please don't rob me, the window's open, <laughs> or it's the excrement, or it's the guy walking by, you're walking by, hey, take your throat, or it's the defecation, injection, urination, fornication. It's just a hellhole. And they say, don't exactly, no, it is a hellhole. This, you go 30% of those stores, no, 40% of those stores, I walked by, they're beautiful buildings. They were built during the tech building, they're all empty. You can't, everybody, it's, it's just a mess. And yet, Gavin Newsom cleaned it up for President Xi. He did, for the Chinese dictator. So he's basically, and they we ask him, he said, yeah, people are going to say I just cleaned it up for the Chinese dictator. Well, that's true, I did. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's true, it's because it's true. And where it was. He didn't, it would have been all right if he cleaned it up for the Chinese, and then he kept it clean. Yeah. Because it shows that he had the ability to do it. But basically, he's saying, I will be insensitive to the needs of the homeless <laughs> and the criminals. I wonder how he stopped the carjacking and smash and grab for a week. I bet it was pretty tough. He put up a bunch of um, fences so yes, you couldn't he did. see anything. <laughs> so that was pathetic. It was yeah. almost as pathetic as his performance in the DeSantis debate where he just lied all the time. Yeah. And then what about number five? Oh, number five. I got to get... Um, I was reading the, the Satyricon the other day. It's a beautiful Latin. Petronius, a novel written around 60 AD, but it's, it, this is Petronian. And this was the aid, uh, the senatorial aide that decided that he was going to have sex, uh, anal receptive sex without a condom, and he was going to film the act in a hollowed 
Senate chamber and post it on his social media. And then when people criticize, you say, you just are trying to attack my type of love and the person I love. As if that showed a caring relationship that somebody sodomizes somebody in a Senate thing for performance art screwing. And it was decadent. And it was in the Senate. And it was kind of a commentary we talked about at the time. And it was a whole range of transsexual guys showing their breasts at a White House event or a, a little Easter bunny twerking as if she was, he or whatever the little bunny was, was fornicating. It's, you know, it's Patronian. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, it's summed up. These are not, cla- these are not existential crises or major developments or... They're just psychodramas, the things like that. But they yeah. do reflect the status of society. It does. The first thing he did was play victim after he victimized all of us by desecrating the Senate chambers. So let's turn to the worst and the best. I think let's just do quickly the worst, like people that would be on your list. And if I could um, do three and you do three and we can see which ones are. I would say Hunter, Sam, Bankman, Fried, and um, Greta Van Thunberg. Is that her name? Let's see. Greta Van Thunberg. She was the one who, right out of the gates, news Hamas kills, murders, rapes. Uh, tortures, decap. Yeah, I'm for Hamas. <laughs> that was what she was. That, and, you know, I'm Swedish, so I don't claim her. Maybe I hope she doesn't claim me. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, that was pathetic. And then you yeah. said Hunter. Yeah. People forget about Hunter. I mean, in the laptop, I got the copy of the laptop. The whole, uh, somebody sent it to me, a really nice person sent it to me. And there's stuff in there. I mean, Selfies. We talked about the Biden family doing all these sick things. Um, Frank Biden, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Ashley Biden. They all have a propensity to, you know, swim naked in front of social, uh, Secret Service women or take selfies of them and have them uh, end up on, um, I guess you'd say they ended up on pornographic gay sites or Ashley Biden, Biden's diary confessing to showering at too late an age with her father and Hunter. But the worst thing about Hunter was he he did all of these things. He even was a racist. He said no Asian and he, this back and forth with his cousin or sister was, oh, don't worry, I won't get you an Asian. They were procuring for their own cousin. But it was, what I, I guess with Hunter, it was every depravity, drugs, sex, prostitution, racism, it was all there. And, yeah. and yet, and now he's he's talking about leaving the country or they're going after him. He blames everybody and everything except himself because he's a selfish SOB. Yeah, he didn't say he's leaving the country. He said he's going to be forced to leave the country. Who was the third one you had? <laughs> Sam Bankman Fried. Yeah, well, I have a little special relationship because he kept me up a couple of nights because he was under house arrest about a quarter mile, half mile away when the paparazzi helicopters were trying to spot him. As he was, what, trying to influence witnesses on his... Can you imagine the guy, the biggest financial thief in American history in our liberal court system allows him to go back to his parents' house who were knee-deep in his shenanigans themselves, $16 million this and that, and father whining about why he didn't get a million instead of a quarter million, and... 
they were so self-righteous. The mother was a bundler of Silicon Valley for progressive. The father was a progressive tax lawyer. They were always lecturing about equality, Sam Bankman Freed, and they were the greediest people in the world. And they all, they destroyed a lot of lives. They yeah. really did. A lot of people invested in that and destroyed them. Couldn't happy couldn't have happened to a nicer person. <laughs> and you know, just honorable mention before we move on to the best, because we want to talk about the best. But um, Menendez with the, the gold bars in his house and sewn stuff into his clothes. I don't understand that because he was charged during the Obama and how he it usually works with the left. They all know these guys are crooks and they let him go until they cross them. He crossed Obama on their Rand deal. Remember that? Because he has a large Jewish constituency. I say that only because he has no principles. He wouldn't support Israel if he had. It's just because he thinks it, it resonates with his electorate. So he crosses it, and what's happened? They find out that he's going to be bribery, and he did, all, and they put him on trial, and he got off with a hung jury. So you would think, I'll tiptoe around. I'll be very clean. I won't get an in. And no, he's got gold bars. He's got money. He's got this weird new wife that he went to the Taj Mahal and filmed his getting on his knee and asking. It, it's just out of the satiricon. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> but I had one uh, addition, and that's this. Of all the reprehensible academic scenarios, you know what the worst was? It was that professor at Cornell... Russell Rickford, and he's out with his bullhorn or wherever he is to a crowd, and he has the news on October 7th that Hamas with hang gliders and boats and civilians and bulldozers have gone into Israel and they're slaughtered 1,200 people in the kibbutzes. And there had already been news of rape. And he said he was exhilarated. Remember that? I'm exhilarated. I thought, wow, you're a professor of history at Cornell. And by the way, I think his father is James Rickford or John, excuse me, John Rickford, because at Stanford where I work, I think his father is the father of eubonics. That remember the Oakland school district said they were going to create a new language, uh, recognize a new language. And I think that was in the 90s. They called him in as the expert who tried to tell us that it was a separate language, but but as equal, <laughs> I guess, to use the old racist language, separate, but equal. equal. Yeah. But so that I thought that was, I mean, how can a person be a professor when he hears of mass murder and he's exhilarated by it? Yeah. And I think he's just on what they do is they put they put him on leave for about a semester, pay him so he doesn't have to work and then they'll bring him back. Yeah. And we would, of course, include Fauci, Mayorkas, Newsom, oh, if we had God. more time to talk about stupid. Fauci's, <laughs> the walls are closing in every day. We talked about his subordinate who said he was awake at night, remember? Yeah. Because he was asked to lie about the pangolin and the bat when he knew it came from the COVID lab. And he knew Fauci had funded that circularly through Echo Health and other uh, expertise and instrumentation he'd given this lab. And so he, the, basically his subordinates thought, wow, if you do the ultimate calculus, this guy is at the heart of the creation of a virus that infected 2 billion people and ruined the American economy and killed America, a million Americans. And yet he's 
Remember he said, I don't need God. <laughs> I don't need religion. I am the science. I am the science. My little bubblehead toy that he has. Remember that picture of his office? Everything was I him. Him. And he was a, just a mediocrity. He didn't really publish all that much. He was a public health expert. He had no expertise in immunotherapy or anything. But he was just, oh, I, it just... I know. So let's 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 turn to the best, right? Yes. So who are your top um, best people of 2023? I like Elon Musk. I know a lot of people don't like him, but he didn't have to lose $20 billion. He saved Twitter. And whatever you say, it is different now. There's, there's no suppression. You could, as soon as he came out and said he wasn't going to vote for Biden, all of a sudden there's a story every week about Tesla's. And you look at the story very carefully, and there's about 10 cars. But they, they hate him, and they're trying to destroy his company. It's the world's greatest, uh, I think it's the largest uh, sales of any other car maker, or Tesla's. And in addition to that, his SpaceX is a very important, it's working. I've never seen one person in so many different fields that takes enormous risk and for all of his eccentricities, his kids, his wives, his girlfriends, his off-the-wall calm, he does it really to do, make things better for people. He does. Yeah. And so I, I admire him a lot. He's number one. Yeah. yeah. Who's number two? Uh, I'm trying to get people who are a little obscure. I, I really like this judge, uh, Mary Ellen Noreka. She was the one... When the prosecutors and the DOJ and the IRS had cooked this whole thing up that Hunter was, Hunter was going to, you know, they had just sat on these statute of limitations. And there is no statute of limitations for serious major tax fraud. But they said it wasn't serious and major. And he was scot-free and the whole Biden family was off to the races. Ha, 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 ha. Pay your, remember Joe Biden has said, pay your fair share, except if you're you know, Hunter. my daughter or my brother or me or Hunter. But that judge stopped it. She stopped that plea, plea bargain deal. Mm. She said, wait a minute. This guy has all sorts of legal exposure. We have whistleblowers. So I thought that was quite brave because yeah. uh, she will pay a price, especially when Mar Merrick Garland, who's a mean... S-O-B. S-O-B and has been <laughs> never... He was like somebody who was crushed... And his failed bid to be a Supreme Court, maybe justice, maybe he's never gotten over. He's traumatized. Yeah. Who's number three? I like Tucker Carlson. You know, everybody's angry at him, but. And, you know, he got into UFOs and all that. But night after night after night, he said things that were pretty accurate. He said that we were not going to win. Our strategy was not going to go to Moscow. It was kind of da dangerous that it was probably the U.S. or the U.S. knew about blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. The Ukrainians probably did it. I think the Ukrainians did it. He was right about that. He, uh, I remember him years ago when he came to Hoover. He was a very different person, and I think he's developed a sincere populist concern for the majority of working-class people. And to get that point, and he's hated by all the people he used to work with at the Weekly Standard, the Never Trump people. And he kind of created an honest show. You could see he was going to be fired. You could see it. Because he was asking questions about January 6th that were way ahead of the crowd. Informants, there was a lot of them. Here's the evidence. Uh, 
Ashley Babbitt, unarmed, misdemeanor offense, shot. I think he even said the word murdered. He was, and he was saying the word murder to get in a reaction because that's what the left says when a policeman shoots an unarmed felon suspect. So he brought all of the things to the attention. And I think it would be very interesting when they did this with Bill O'Reilly and Megyn Kelly left. But they, I think Megyn Kelly rebounded pretty well. She's got a, a, a hit podcast, and I've been on it. It's very, Bill O'Reilly actually has a large audience, you know, everybody. Yeah. But they're out of the limelight. Uh, Bill is. Megan's not. But I think Tucker's going to make it. I really do. I think this new venture will work. Yeah. And that's what's going to make people hate him even more. How about but, number four? Well, we were talking about Fauci. So the antithesis of Fauci were two people that were colleagues of mine at Stanford. And I'm prejudiced because of that fact, because I know them both. But Jay Bhattacharya... Uh, the Stanford immunologist, Ph.D. and M.D., and he's now a Hoover um, visiting fellow. I hope he would somehow we can make him permanent. And Scott Atlas, who I've known for 15, 20 years, and who was an, a public policy expert, and they very early on, Jay's, the Great Barrington Declaration said, the lockdown will do more damage than the virus. What you're doing is ensuring higher suicides, missed cancer screenings, economic damage, uh, spousal abuse, drug abuse, you name it. And we're not going to recover. Kids are going to lose too. Let's just concentrate on people who are vulnerable over 60. Be very careful about the vaccines. They're untested in terms of what we usually test. They have efficacy to stop the, the lethal first forms of the virus. But this idea you're going to keep getting booster and booster and booster and booster and booster, it's unproven. Be very careful. There will be side effects. They were right, both of them. Mask. If you've got a messy, messy COVID coughing, then a mask has some value in close quarters. But the idea that we're going to, you know, mask the entire population is going to have damage in itself, both health. Everything they said was right. And they were demonized. I saw it unfold on my campus where... The medical school went after both of them. In the case of Scott, they tried to take his medical license. In the case of the university, they censored him. The faculty senate censored him. They were persona, personae non grata. It was horrible what they did to them. And yet they never gave up. And now they're completely, they're completely exonerated. I shouldn't say that. They were right. And I've had people come up to me and say, colleagues, and people I knew at, on, at the Stanford faculty, I'm, I'm glad that Scott, I was out right about And I thought, well, you were one of the people who signed the petition, you know, censoring him. Yeah. I can't believe that. So I... They deserve I, to be They They are really, and if there's a Republican victory, if it's Trump or DeSantis or Haley, I have, a, I just hope that Jay Bhattacharya is the head of the CDC or the NIH, and Scott is HHW or whatever. He's HHI, Health and Human Service, HHS, excuse me. And then maybe John Ioannidis was another one. He was those the big, the triad that were completely right. They all need to be directing now. I think there would be no better head of the uh, National Institute of Health than Jay, and no better HHS secretary than Scott. And John Yanides should be running the CDC. Yeah. And we would get out of this Fauci depression that we're in. Yeah. So 
Do you think? Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Do you think then um, Netanyahu should be on this list by any chance? I do. You know what I get so angry about? Yes. This is what I get so damn angry about. Every single article in the mainstream media starts out with, with, yes, this was horrible on October 7th. And across the political divide, there's consensus now. We don't quite understand it, but there's consensus among the left, the center, and the right that they have to destroy them all. But it wouldn't have happened if it had to been for Netanyahu. <laughs> God. So he's blamed for being too naive, even though all three branches of the military intelligence, this domestic and foreign intelligence, all of them failed as well as his administration, to, to see what Hamas was up to. Maybe policies made them more neat. But I am so sick of saying, of intruding and interfering with the domestic politics of Israel. This administration has made it clear that they do not want this person. And they try to interfere. And Tom Friedman, whoever it is, any liberal person cannot talk about Israel in any rational f- fashion without then saying that Netanyahu's the problem and he should leave. And they don't understand that, like Golda Meir, he was surprised, Yom Kippur, and like Golda Meir, she punished the people, and they won that war. And he's going to win the Gaza war. And then when he wins the Gaza war, when a lot of people want to quit, both in Israel, some, and in the United States, he's the object of enormous pressure. Because he's not out of it, because you've got thousands of people on the northern border that are homeless in Israel. Because Hamas, uh, Hezbollah realizes that they have only a brief window. As Hamas goes down the drain, they're trying to step up rockets attacks, Iran, and we're not deterring them. The United States is not telling Iran, you allow Hezbollah to start another war, you're not going to like what we're going to do. That's all you'd have to do. Yeah. But... I think in February, Hamas is going to be history, and now they're going to have to deal with Hezbollah, not because they want to. But my point is, since October 7th, somebody should say what Netanyahu has done wrong. He's done everything right. He's withstood every pressure. But they can't finish a sentence without... He's, he's kind of their Trump, and they're deranged about him. Yeah. So I give him a lot of credit. Uh, a couple of more obscure people to finish... I wrote a uh, 5,000-word analysis of Oliver Anthony, the new country western blues, uh, bluegrass, I should say. And he wrote Richmond, North of Richmond. And I analyzed it. It was kind of funny how he did miners on an island and real miners who dig or rich man, rich man. It had a lot of brilliant uh, couplets in it that went beyond rhyming. And it was a, it had a good sound to it. He has a good voice and it was sincere. His story was inspirational. He didn't go immediately try to cash in. He's not kind of a, I don't know, fluffy country Western person that's kind of mainstream. And he took a lot of uh, attacks that were unfair about him, that he was white, supreme, all of those lies about him. And he was bewildered by it all. He just basically said, I just wanted to, to write something sincere about how the working class is being destroyed. And it was through globalization and elites and Richmond, north of Richmond. And that was Washington, D.C., right down the freeway from him. 
So I thought it was a, a, an artistic achievement, and I liked his life story. And I think anytime we see people like that that speak out against this bicoastal elite, credentialed, godless, amoral global population, it's it's important because yeah. they don't have our best. In, their intentions are not our intentions and their desires are not ours and what they envision is not what we envision. Yeah. It's kind of a nightmarish control of everybody. And then another person swimming against the current is Riley Gaines. Swimming swimming is very cute. Double entendre. Double entendre. Yes, she was at, <laughs> I like, she was at uh, San Francisco State and they trapped her in a room and tried to physically destroy her. Mm. Trapper, and she was courageous. She just gets on television. She just says what she wants, and the power of her her persona is, besides the fact she's very well spoken for a very young woman. She's very attractive. She has a record of being an accomplished. So she's genuine, authentic, but she's courageous. Remember, Aristotle said in the Nicomachean Ethics that the most important virtue is courage. Without courage, you can have no other virtues. Kind of like the, some of the founders said, well, we might, we don't even really need uh, a Bill of Rights because we have the Second Amendment. If you have the right to bear arms, you can always get your freedom. <laughs> well, the, the equivalent of that was Aristotle. If you have courage, then everything falls into place. And so she, she doesn't back down. Her basic message is biological males have a muscular skeleton system that is different than women, and it gives them enormous innate advantages. Forget about whatever you say about hormones. They are not women, and they are taking advantage. Uh, as mediocre athletes in male sports, they are taking advantage. Women, when they transition to males, they don't do well in male sports. Do you understand why? Because they are Physically, biologically yeah. different. Yeah. And so why wouldn't the inverse be true? These people are capitalizing and manipulating women, and they are destroying 50 years of women's accomplishments. They're destroying their records. They're destroying their competitiveness. And in some cases where there's young girls and they're teen, they should not have to take their clothes off and see somebody parade around with testicles and a penis in front of them. And 10 years ago, that would have been a felony to do that. And so she's, I, I admire her. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I admire all, anybody who comes out of the middle classes, you know what I mean? Or from their bureaucracies and says, no, not this pig. Known hick porcus. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah. And, and I think uh, Judge Noreka and Tucker and Jay and Scott, all of Anthony and Baby. And Riley. For yeah. all, and then I like the idea that Netanyahu doesn't back down. He says, I'm going to destroy Hamas. He didn't say, we're going to deal with it. There's going to be measures taken. Uh, we're, we're in discussions. He just said, we got to destroy them. They're monsters. Yeah. All right. Well, Victor, thank you for this. Thank you for the entire year of 2023 Long and year. all of your commentary. Yes, it's been a we very We had a good year. We year. ended up uh, this week on a uh, political podcast. Did you see that? We were number two in the nation for yeah. about a week. And then today, as I speak, I think we're number six. Yeah. And we're kind of the only people. I mean, the people ahead of us are usually NPR or Pod of America, people at the studios and guests and salaries and engineers. We don't have anything. No. We're just here. 
looking things up on our computer and telephones. Salma, California, doing you know ad hoc mic. I would like to thank a couple people who have been have reached out this year, if I could. Yeah. Uh, Carol Harris of Harris Farms has been really supportive of us, and you know John Harris, the farmer, and some of you know Harris Beef Ranch Hotel Complex. Uh, I can say this without reservation because I've been in this valley. I, of all the successful big farmers, I say big, say in the thousands of acres, that is a rough and tough business. I don't know how people do it, but of all of them, there is no one with higher integrity and morality than John Harris. Yeah. He's honest as the day is long. He really is. I've known him a long time. I really admire him. I admire Carol Harris a great deal, they, and they've been supportive. Um, I have some great colleagues at, at the Hoover Institution. Gosh, I don't know what I would do without colleagues like Scott Atlas, uh, Peter Robinson, and his engineer, Scott Emmergut. They were great people. Mm-hmm. I, I, they've always, uh, it's just a joy to work with people. And then I have a great staff. Megan Ring is, she's my uh, chief of staff. Uh, David Berkey helps me. He's the editor. Basically, I say I'm the editor-in-chief, but he does most of the work. He's the managing editor of a Strategica, full-time job. I've got Bruce Thornton from years at Cal State, who's a Hoover fellow, and he does all of the editing for us on the magazine. Yeah. And we have a really brilliant young researcher, and she's helped on a lot of things I've been writing as far as checking facts and things. And I did Morgan uh, Hunter. So I've been really blessed with the staff I have at Hoover and the colleagues there. And it's in a tall, in a sea of madness at Stanford. Yeah. And so I've been very fortunate that people have been supportive because I've been in hot water for speaking out in the way that Scott has. And Neil Ferguson as well. And did you um, mention Megan Ring? She keeps you all together. Yes, Yes. I said she was basically our chief of staff. She does everything. She calls me up. I'm like somebody who just wakes up and I look at my email or my calendar and I thought, oh my God. Then she calls Victor, Megan, at 8 o'clock, you were going to do this. At 8.15, you've got this. At 9 o'clock, you have a deadline due. At 9.15, and bam, 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 bam. And then see you tomorrow. (laughs) And she points me in the right direction as if I'm a robot. So I, I appreciate that. So... I, uh, you also have some Russian scholars at your work, friends, that have been really informative about the Ukraine war and yes, things like that. That has uh, really been helpful, I think. Yes, we have at the Strategica. I, I'm very lucky. I'm on the 11th floor of the Hoover Tower. I know somebody mentioned that in a really nasty letter. So, oh, you're in an ivory tower. It's not made of ivory. And uh, I have two scholars there. One is H.R. McMaster. Who I've known a long time. I was with him in Iraq as an embed. And the other is uh, Steve Kotkin, the Russian biographer, who's a brilliant guy, absolutely brilliant. Wrote that first volume. The second volume's coming out of Stalin, Monumental Biography. It. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So I've been, and we have all kinds of people who come in, this, in the military that have been really good friends Mark Moyer, uh, Edward Lutwak. Uh, Andrew Roberts, Neil Fergus, they're all good, good people. I've been very fortunate with that. I've been very lucky in my life, and, yeah. and I owe a lot. I owe a lot to my parents who sacrificed and sacrificed, and both died pretty early, shouldn't have. I have two wonderful children, Bill and Pauline, and I'm glad that Pauline's helping me out. And Bill's uh, 
always he's just a wonderful son i've been very lucky to have i had a wonderful daughter who passed away susanna yeah. we were very close we talked every day but i've been very lucky so and i have great audience i i you know i was looking at all this snail mail and email that comes to the website and to me it's about 400 300 400 a day texting i can't possibly answer but almost 99 i put the angry reader up but most of them are I really like the Echo Diesel. Hey, Victor, I got a part here I can get you. Or I'm a, <laughs> they're always helpful. Yeah, they are. And there's people. I have a doctor, a medical person owns a company in Los Angeles, Richard. He's all, when I had long COVID, he woke me every day with new ideas, supplements. I don't mention their last name because association. Yeah, and then there's a guy named Gary who from the Bay Area. I don't shouldn't say barrier, but he knows everything about trees and her, arboriculture, viticulture, you name it. And he writes me really funny things. I really like that. I got a guy named John from Chicago. <laughs> he's a businessman, and boy, he's had a lot of rough times, and it doesn't phase him a bit. He used to take my daughter on the trips. He was one of our travelers when I had the Al Philip Victor Hansen tours. We have one left. And he would give my daughter advice about business. <laughs> very, very wise guy, Al Philip. My gosh, he's a great partner of 20 years that does our trips. He and I are partners. I love Hillsdale. I had Tom Connor, Mark Kalkoff, best friends. Larry Arndt's been a good friend, president of Hillsdale. Yeah. You can't think of all these wonderful people. Pete Peterson, the dean of public policy school, Pepperdine. And... I, I've been very lucky. Yeah. One of my, you know, I get talked to Roger Kimball because I'm the chairman of the board of the Bradley Oversight of Encounter Books and Roger is the editor. And what he's done with Encounter Books is like, when I first got on that committee, I mean, wow, it was the A and now it's Z. It's just booming and it's profitable. And he's got all these major authors who've been blacklisted by the major publishing companies. And how he does that he reads all the manuscripts and he has he writes five columns a week and he's the, he runs a new criterion. I don't know how he does it. I, I don't. But it's amazing to see him do that. Yeah. So I hope in 2024 that I and I, I, I prayed. I did. Uh, there was so many. I got to think Dr. Sam Pappas from Hillsdale. When I had the, I was in the depths of, I could hardly walk with long COVID. I had high eye pressure. I could not smell. I couldn't taste. I had the grossest yellow tongue. I had neuropathy and I talked to him weekly and he gave me some of the best advices. Just calm down. You have an inflammatory state caused by the spike protein. We don't have to give you massive, but I think if you take these supplements, they will help. Try And I got on a program. I think I'm 90% well. Yeah. And it was, I owe it to him. So yeah. anyway, I think at the end of the year, it's good to show gratitude. And of course, all the listeners, because I never in my right mind, when we left the Stanford platform, the classicist and came here and then we left the National Review, Jack and I left, obvious reasons. We started from nothing. Yeah. And the idea that we have this huge audience now and we're you know, on the political podcast in the United States, we're second, third, sixth, fifth forth given the resources that we the kind of meager uh, as far as our audio <laughs> equipment and studio and everything and our biggest problem is spot 
and Spike and Sport and Gracie that sit here in the window and look at me and just when I want to make a statement start screaming and barking and fighting. <laughs> so anyway, I, right. I, I'm very, we're very lucky. We're very lucky. And yes, thanks for Jack Fowler. You guys do oh, a great show. I didn't mention Jack. Show. We would be yeah. lost without Jack. Yeah, Fowler. absolutely. Yes. All right. And thank you to the audience. Once again, I know Victor was thanking you. We are so appreciative of your listening. And we I hope want to, to say one you. last thing, though. Oh, go ahead. There are people who have been very generous as far as supporting institutions I've been associated with. Oh, yes. And, my gosh, Vic Trioni of the Winery family from Santa Rosa and Jim Jameson, the polymath, multifaceted business person who's everything he touches turns to gold. He always takes risk. Roger Hertog, the philanthropist in New York. And one of my closest friends, Rebecca Mercer, she I uh, helped tutor her kids for 10 years. And um, they're a wonderful family. She was the object of a lot of unfair reportage, but she's one of the nicest persons in the world, very uh, helpful to a lot of people. And yeah. so I've been very lucky in the support that uh, Jeremiah Middlebank, he's been helpful, all of them. And uh, they really came in handy when things got a little hot at Stanford. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you in 2024. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. Thanks, everybody.